when you're making something that is clearly dangerous and clearly can deliver harm, pain, death, there is a responsibility to uh, care about how your gun uh, is sold. We do have some insane gun laws, and uh, firearms are among the most regulated things in the United States. You can never, ever achieve anything in society by punishing the innocent for the acts of the guilty. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And before we introduce today's topic, let me just take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the online practice management platform for lawyers. You can find out more about Clio at www.goclio.com. Well, on December 14th, 2012, a, a lone gunman killed 26 people at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut. Of those, 20 were first graders and six were adults. Some two years after that tragedy, the families of the victims have filed a civil suit against Bushmaster Firearms International, the manufacturer of the firearm used in those murders. Today, we're going to talk about that case and uh, about the laws uh, at play here uh, and some of the policy and legal issues and uh, social issues surrounding that lawsuit and those shootings. To help us do that today, we have three guests. Uh, Let me first begin by welcoming to the show Elliot Feynman. In 2006, a paranoid schizophrenic murdered Mr. Feynman's son with a legally obtained firearm. Since that time, He has gone on to found National Gun Victims Action Council, and he is the uh, president and CEO of that organization. And he's become a leading voice for a network of gun victims, survivors, and the faith community, all seeking to promote uh, what they call saner gun laws in America. Among many other appearances, uh, he has been on, uh, Mr. Feynman has been on CNBC, CNN, Fox News. He's been quoted by top media outlets, including USA Today, National Public Radio, and the Chicago Sun-Times, and he's hosted a bi-monthly radio program of his own called It's the Guns, Stupid, on 1480 WPWC in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Mr. Feynman. Thank you, Bob. Very happy to be here today. Well, we're happy to have you. And uh, next, let me welcome to the program uh, Charles Heller. Charles is the former executive director of Jews for the Preservation of Firearms Ownership, and he's now their communications coordinator. Uh, he also is a talk show host for shows Swap Shop, Liberty Watch, and America Armed and Free on Radio 1030 KVOI in Tucson, Arizona. He's been a state-certified concealed weapons instructor since 1994 enlists his political affiliation as freedomist. Uh, welcome to the show, Charles Heller. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks. And uh, last but not least, uh, let me welcome to the show 
Nicholas Johnson. Uh, Nicholas Johnson is a professor of law at Fordham University School of Law, where his principal subjects are contracts, environmental law, gun control, gun rights. Uh, he is the author of the book Negroes and the Gun, The Black Tradition of Arms, and is the lead editor of the book uh, Firearms Law and the Second Amendment Cases and Materials, published by Aspen Press in 2012. He's also published many articles on the Second Amendment and gun control, including a recent article on the Soto versus Bushmaster case titled Newtown Suit Proceeds Under False Pretenses. So welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Nicholas Johnson. Thank you. I'd like to just start by kind of going around and getting your reaction to this lawsuit from all of you. I obviously... Uh, be obvious from the descriptions I just gave of, of each of you that you're going to have very different reactions to this. But uh, I, I'd be curious to just get your, your short take on, on what you thought uh, uh, when you heard about this lawsuit being filed. And, and Mr. Feynman, let's start with you. Well, I certainly uh, understand the reasons why the lawsuit was filed. Uh, I work very closely with the people in Newtown since the tragedy. While I live in Chicago, I've spent uh, many trips in Newtown and work uh, very closely with a group called the Newtown uh, Victims and Clergy for Corporate Responsibility. Uh, that said, uh, I don't think the suit will be successful. Uh, I am sorry that it won't be, but that's because of what I would call the insanity of our gun laws. Uh, guns are, are, are the only consumer product uh, that are not regulated. It used to be tobacco and guns, now it's just guns. And uh, because of the immunity that the gun industry enjoys, and because of the way it's structured, uh, I don't believe the suit will be successful. I think it's worthwhile to have filed in terms of the human feeling, you know, that the Newtown parents who've lost children and also lost, you know, sisters and, you know, teachers, you know, the adults, and also to raise, um, I think it'll be a high-profile case, and I think it will raise for the public uh, some of the insanities of our gun laws. Uh, Charles Heller, I'm guessing you'll, you'd agree that, that in, in your opinion, this uh, lawsuit might not be successful, but I suspect you have different reasons for thinking that. It's flawed on its face. The military doesn't use the AR-15, and, and that's, that's what the case hinges on, and it simply does not. It's just factually incorrect. But we do have some insane gun laws, and uh, firearms are among the most regulated things in the United States. We produce a documentary about it called uh, The Gang, and it shows some of the ways that they just plain evil ways that the uh, BATFE, that some people call Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, we refer to as the brutal and tyrannical fascist extraordinaire, uh, misenforce some of those uh, terrible uh, overregulated laws. Uh, and uh, Nicholas Johnson, I mean, y you've made the point uh, in, in your article that I mentioned at the uh, opening of the show uh, that this lawsuit appears to run contrary to the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, a 2005 law that uh, provides pretty broad immunity to firearms manufacturers. Well, uh, yeah, my comment was uh, laying out the um, just the critique of the complaint based on that law. The law actually allows um, you know, traditional lawsuits for negligence, 
Uh, it allows lawsuits uh, against firearms manufacturers if they violate laws that legislators have put in place to govern the purchase and sale and the manufacturing and distribution of uh, firearms. Uh, but they do not allow, it does not allow, and, and does uh, prevent these suits uh, based on a variety of uh, different uh, tort theories, and that's a consequence of an earlier spate of lawsuits that were based on a variety of, of different creative approaches. One was, was oversupplying firearms, and, and uh, I guess this one uh, seems to be something like negligent entrustment. And um, the theory just is not compatible with the existing scheme of firearms regulation. So the AR-15 is, is, is allowed under the 1968 Gun Control Act. Other similar sorts of laws also are impacted or, or have an impact on the assessment here, the National Firearms Act of 1934, um, and even the Civilian Marksmanship Program, which uh, for a very long time has been the mechanism through which the United States government has uh, provided uh, semi-automatic firearms to individuals under the CMP. I just want to jump back to, to Charles Heller. You made the point uh, that, that this is not a that the weapon in Use in this case, at issue in this case, was not a was not a military weapon. Uh, help me understand that. I, my understanding is that this was actually originally designed as a military weapon, and, and that it evolved into uh, other forms of weapons. And I'm no gun expert at all. But but Charles, could you explain that to me? Well, the original design by Eugene Stoner was what became the AR-10, which is a much more powerful gun. It's a, a 308 caliber uh, weapon. This is a, the, a 223 is a very low powered as as weapons go. It's okay for hunting small deer and uh, and good for competition, but the cartridge is not that powerful. Number one, the 223 that the military uses, and number two is is that the rifle was uh, adapted. There was a, a civilian version of it was made, but it's really not the same gun. It's not fully automatic. The military uses almost exclusively full auto and burst fire whereas the civilian version is semi-auto, and it, uh, uh, you, you just like a revolver, for each pull of the trigger, you get one, uh, one round out of the, uh, the chamber. I happen to have one in my lap right at the moment, and uh, it's not a particularly fearsome or, or awesome weapon. It's, it's America's rifle. There's been over 35 million of them made in the last 51 years, and it's America's sport utility rifle. It's probably after twenty after the Ruger ten twenty two. It's probably the most owned rifle in America. Very common and ordinary. It's garden variety. Nicholas Johnson, you you would talk about this a little bit in your article. Does the lawsuit get it right in its description uh, of this weapon or its understanding of this weapon? No, it, it really doesn't, and it. So it hinges on uh, an attempt to make an exception uh, or to create an exception to the uh, Prevention of Lawful Commerce in, in Arms Act. And what it says is that uh, the U.S. government and the military have taken special efforts to keep the AR-15 out of the hands of uh, civilians. And that's just false. Uh, so what I talked about in the blog post was uh, this, this sort of long history uh, through which we have seen public policymakers for, you know, closing in on 100 years, uh, making a distinction between semi-automatic and fully automatic. And uh, um, civilians in the U.S. have had access to semi-automatic firearms, um, you know, since the inception. So, you know, the, you, you look at guns like the, the 1907 Winchester, uh, which is, is uh, nearly 100 years old in, in design and uh, availability. Since the Charles was uh, describing our 
uh, basically accurate. So the National Firearms Act of 1934 made, again, a distinction between the regulation of fully automatic and semi-automatic firearms. And access to semi-automatics is fairly wide. Uh, one study from a group in Harvard a couple of years ago uh, concluded that 60% of American gun owners own some sort of semi-automatic firearm. So I think factually that the complaint rests on this attempt to make a distinction between the AR-15 and, and other types of firearms or other types of semi-automatic firearms, and um, I don't see a way factually for them to for the uh, plaintiffs to uphold that distinction. Elliot uh, Feynman, uh, your organization uh, is pushing for sane gun laws. Do, does your organization see? Uh, a distinction, uh, see that there should be a legal distinction among these types of guns between semi-automatic, fully automatic guns? Well, we take a different position. The uh, gun side uh, likes to get lost in the details, in the uh, uh, structure, the manufacturing, the size, et cetera, et cetera, of the, of the guns. And uh, it's because of that when we had the uh, ban on uh, automatic, semi-automatic weapons uh, that it was effectively no ban because it just took the gun manufacturers a little uh, adjustment to the way they made their guns to completely, to completely get around it. What we focus on is bullets per minute that can be fired or bullets that can be fired before reloading. And there's absolutely no defensive reason uh, for having a gun that shoots more than uh, five to 10 bullets at a time uh, before needing to be reloaded or per minute. Uh, it's so disingenuous to say this is a garden variety uh, tool that people just uh, use for their pleasure of hunting. It's a strictly offensive weapon. It is not a defensive weapon. And it's a weapon that civilians shouldn't have. You never read about uh, somebody having used their semi-automatic weapon to uh, defend themselves or to get out of a difficult situation. What you do read about, of course, is how the semi-automatics are used or the fully automatics are used to commit uh, mass uh, murders. So it's a completely inappropriate uh, uh, gun to be in, in, in public hands. And we, we don't define it in any kind of uh, technical term other than the obvious, which is bullets per minute that can be fired and or bullets that can be fired before reloading. Can I add something to, um, it's, it's an important point that the other uh, speaker just made, and, and this is one of the things that, that I uh, tried to talk about in uh, the blog post and also uh, talked about in Senate testimony. So uh, you know, a couple of things here. Um, one is that if, if, if one compares the, the AR-15, for example, in terms of, of multi Ability, which was the, the uh, last comment, uh, to a variety of other common firearms. Uh, not only is, is it not exceptional, but just in 
as a, a matter of measurement, uh, it's, it's actually um, inferior to another very common firearm. And um, I, I cite to this in, in the blog post, uh, what, I, what I talk about is, is the common shotgun, which is a multi-projectile uh, kind of, of technology. And I, I think, and if, if people look at this just from the perspective of the arguments and, and why uh, there's there's objection on one side or the other uh, when people are making these arguments, the worry, I believe, by people who have a concern about claims that are made by the uh, about the AR-15 is that there are a variety of other common guns that exceed the AR-15 in terms of, of multi-shot capability, and that includes uh, most sort of common uh, repeating shotguns loaded with buckshot, and, and this is not just my assessment. Um, so one of the things that I cite in the blog post is the Army Combat uh, Shotgun Assessment uh, that, that talks about the uh, effectiveness relative uh, lethality of um, the AR-15 versus uh, the common repeating shotgun uh, and, and finds that the, the shotgun is, is superior. So the, the details actually do matter here, and for people who just come at this in a neutral way, trying to understand why the different sides take the positions that they do, um, I, I think you, you actually do have to pay attention to the, the technology and to the distinctions that the pieces of legislation are attempting to make. I want to come back to this point in just a second. I need to take a very short break, and we will be right back and pick up from this point. Uh, so let me uh, just take a moment to hear a word from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, and joining me today are uh, Elliot Feynman from the National Gun Victims Action Council, Charles Heller from Jews for the Preservation of Firearms Ownership, and Professor Nicholas Johnson from Fordham University School of Law. And uh, we're just talking about the different capabilities of some of these weapons. Uh, Elliot Feynman, earlier you had made the, the point that you see no good reason for guns that shoot anything more than five to ten bullets. Uh, Professor Johnson was just making the point that this the, the, the weapon uh, at issue in this lawsuit, the AR-15, is perhaps uh, not not exceptional in, in that regard. I, I want to go just come back to uh, Nicholas Johnson quickly to just ask about uh, Elliot Feynman's point. I mean, what, even if the gun is not exceptional as compared to other guns, what is the need for 
common citizens, for non-military people to have any kind of a gun that can shoot greater than, uh, as Elliot Feynman said, five to ten bullets. I think when we push in, in this direction, just understand that what we're talking about is the rationale for limiting uh, existing firearms that are, are in the inventory. And, and I believe, and I can't speak for uh, everyone in, in this debate, but I believe the people who object to uh, limitations on the AR-15 look at a variety of, of other firearms and say, well, if the logic for uh, banning the AR-15 prevails, then it's a short step, in fact, a very easy step to a uh, restriction on a variety of, of other firearms, and that's the reason that I, I gave the, the comparison to uh, the common shotgun. So, you know, a standard buckshot load produces with a single trigger pull between 9 and 15 projectiles that, that spread down range. Uh, it's designed in a way that uh, is, is similar to, when you look at the descriptions of why the AR-15 is uh, objectionable, uh, and then you look at descriptions of how the uh, common shotgun loaded with buckshot uh, operates, uh, those objections that are raised about the AR-15 are actually more apt in the context of common shotgun, of which there are, are tens of millions. So the, the thing that I think people lose sight of is that this is a broader, longer debate, and um, I'm just trying as, as an observer uh, to understand uh, both sides of it, and I understand Mr. Finn's point, but I, I think that people who are on the other side of the debate are thinking, well, the claims about the AR-15 are are false, there are a variety, just technically in, inaccurate, I guess, and that there are a variety of other guns that people using the same logic might then attack. And this has always been the character of the gun debate, that is, that it's this incrementalist exercise, and people will disagree about that, uh, but I just wanted to sort of put it in perspective for, for people who are, are looking at it uh, sort of from the outside. I want to, okay. I would, this is Charles Heller, I'd like to yes, respond sorry. to what Mr. Feynman said about semi-automatics not, be, he's not aware of semi-automatics not uh, being used in self-defense. I'm sorry that he's unaware of fact, but if you read the, uh, the defensive gun uses that are published in the American Rifleman, you'll find that well more than half of them are done with semi-automatics. As far as the rifle being not defensive, where is it written in the Constitution that, that arms can only be defensive in their nature? You know, we're talking here about a basic individual right, no different than speech. It's absolutely no different than read the Heller decision. It, 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 I'm not related to him, but uh, is it, read the Heller decision. It is a basic, fundamental individual right. And we're talking here about a constitutional right. We're coming at it from the position of, well, why should they be allowed, sir? Government doesn't allow anything. Government isn't in a position to allow anything. The citizens are the ones that are in charge. We allow government to make some regulations. Government doesn't allow us our freedom. Freedom doesn't originate with government. You're born with it. Article 2, Section 2 of Arizona's Constitution and almost every state con and every single state constitution has a provision in it that says that the power is inherent in the people and that the purpose of government is to ensure the rights of the people. Well, all of that is charming and the typical rhetoric uh, that your side always puts out. The reality, of course, is that uh, the issue here is the defensive use of guns and all of these reports in the riflemen, all of these reports uh, by the uh, uh, 
fantastic John Lott, uh, you know, who deals in fantasy, about defensive gun uses, uh, to me, are utterly flawed. And what fl reveals the, the, the flawed nature of them is that none of these people report none, virtually none, report to the police uh, the incident. They all wind up letting the uh, perpetrator uh, that they claim to have uh, defended themselves with with their gun walk away. Uh, as law-abiding citizens, can I I'm sorry. As law-abiding citizens, uh, they let the uh, people who supposedly they uh, defended themselves against walk away free to attack other law-abiding citizens, or maybe even come back a second time. If I may, if if I may, can I? Can I'm I, a defense. I'm a defense sure. instructor. <laughs> I'm a defense instructor, and that's all you legally can do, Mr. Feynman. And if you don't know that, then it's a lack of understanding on your part, you not can't a failure report, on the part you, of the defense. Are you saying you can't report that somebody attacked you and you had to use your gun to defend yourself? Is that what you're saying? No, but I'm saying that you cannot... You cannot legally use more force on a person once they stop uh, I'm not talking you. about force. I'm talking about reporting that somebody broke into your home or your store or accosted you on the street and you got them uh, in a position where they were vulnerable and couldn't continue their attack and you just let them walk away. You, you're saying you That's can't all report you can that? That's legally. That's all you can do legally. You can legally number one report. Number two, those, those incidents I are reported. Sure, go ahead. So one of the things that uh, that happens here, I think that the um, debate here is, is about uh, the, the survey results from the work of, of Gary Kleck, but also 14 other researchers, including researchers who uh, were uh, also expressed some doubt about Gary Kleck's original numbers uh, um, determining uh, defensive gun uses. Uh, but the methodologies that occur there are, are, are quite common. Uh, the one thing that I would add to this is that uh, now in the Internet age, uh, we have the benefit of uh, actual reporting. We don't get much of this. In fact, we get virtually none of this uh, from national reporting. But in on, on local news stations all over the country, uh, we find precisely the sort of uh, reporting of defensive gun uses that we're describing here. And I, I recently had a couple of my students go through uh, just a, a variety of, of YouTube reports, and they've got a, a link called called Armed Self-Defense on YouTube uh, that uh, includes uh, literally hundreds of episodes where uh, people are, are actually reporting to the police. It ends up on the local news that uh, someone broke into my house, I fired my gun. Uh, in, in a couple of these instances, people had security cameras. There's a very vivid incident, uh, incident of uh, a woman in Detroit who actually uses a semi-automatic rifle to protect herself and her kids as, as three or four young thugs were, were attempting uh, to kick in her, her back door. They were armed, fires at them, they run off, um, they later are apprehended. And uh, we're fighting, in fact, now in, uh, I believe, the police chief of Milwaukee and another uh, statement from the police chief of Detroit uh, indicating that they think that this is too good, uh, that uh, people uh, armed defend themselves against uh, attacks that the police 
just as a matter of physics, don't have an opportunity to uh, respond to in, in time. So, you know, there's a dispute about the empirical data, uh, but in terms of the anecdotal uh, material, it's true that when there's one of these horrible events, the national media puts it on this continuous loop, and it looks like that's the only thing that's out there. But it is accurate to say that there are countervailing stories, and we see vividly uh, the evidence of this in, in local well, and regional yeah, of, of course, the real the issue in this lawsuit is not self-defense, obviously. The issue in this lawsuit is is the question of whether the manufacturer should ever bear uh, responsibility or liability for how these weapons are used. And uh, I just want to hear from all of you. I mean, I understand. We, I know that there's a, a law out there, there's a statute out there that addresses this, but as a matter of policy, uh, should gun manufacturers bear responsibility when uh, something like this uh, that happened in Sandy Hook uh, occurs. Elliot Feynman, what's your position on that? Well, I have a very strong position on it. And my position is that, of course, they should. Just like a manufacturer like General Motors or Toyota bears responsibility when one of their uh, cars, you know, are defective or there has to be some responsibility. The gun manufacturers uh, have said very clearly and plainly that they have no responsibility or really no interest about who gets their gun once they make it. Uh, that their job is to just make it and then however it gets out, you know, to the public, uh, law abidings or not law abidings, uh, that's not their issue. But when you're making something that is clearly dangerous and clearly can deliver as it does, tremendous uh, harm, pain, death, tragedy, etc., etc. There is a responsibility to uh, care about how your gun uh, is sold. It would be like car manufacturers making cars uh, and not caring how their dealers sold them. In other words, not, not requiring that their dealer, for example, require that anybody purchasing a car have proof of insurance or proof of, you know, a driver's license. So that there is a responsibility and it's a blatant disregard of safety. And I would contrast it to one other thing. In the fight to get sane sane drinking laws in terms of, you know, DUI laws passed, uh, what the manufacturers did was they formed a group called the Century Council that was even more responsible for getting the DUI laws that we have than uh, MAD. The Century Council said, yep, we make a great product, we want to sell a lot of them, but we don't want the product being used to uh, cause deaths of innocent people. Uh, a completely opposite view than the gun manufacturers uh, have. I'd like to respond to Mr. Feynman. First of all, once again, he doesn't know what he doesn't know. The uh, that exact what he talks about uh, a council of manufacturers was exactly what happened in the early part of the uh, of the 20th century when the sporting arms manufacturing. Uh, SAMI, Sporting Arms Manufacturers Institute, was formed, and they conformed, they all conformed to extremely exacting safety standards. Furthermore, they are they meticulously follow federal law as to how guns must be distributed, that they can only go through distributors, that the transfers be made, uh, be made only from, except at the end user, only be made through distributors and not through individuals, and sold across state lines. They go through tremendous, rigorous, they go through audits 
at the risk of their of their business from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, they are exceedingly cautious about the way they do business. And the idea that they don't, if he doesn't know that, then he's not well informed. If he does know it and he isn't saying it, then he's doing something else. Well, I happen to live uh, in the 21st century. I'm not living in the early part of the 20th century, and things are completely changed. And to suggest that we have controls about how guns are sold that are appropriate and rigorous belies the reality that 40% of the guns that are sold don't even go through a background check. They're bought yeah, on the internet. It's also, it also denies our freedom. You talk about your Second Amendment right freedom. I have a Second Amendment right freedom too, and it's to regulate guns. Uh, that no, that one gets so, lost. Oh, yes, yes, I do. I'd like to respond. There was a time in this country when people voted on other people's rights. That was called Jim Crow. If you like Jim Crow, you'll love gun control. Okay. I like uh, gun safety, uh, and I like protecting the public safety, and your analogy is absurd. But I won't, yeah. we don't have time well, to can, respond can to I, that. Well, we don't have time, but yeah, let me hear from Nicholas Johnson on this. So I just wanted to sharpen the analogy. It is accurate to say that gun manufacturers go through a variety of uh, regulatory steps uh, based on the 1968 Gun Control Act. And the thing that, that I think uh, Mr. Feynman uh, is, is urging, if you, if you took that argument and actually did extend it to other products, uh, the the argument would be that if if uh, someone in in a state of intoxication um, drives a car and runs into uh, someone and kills them, that the both the, the liquor manufacturer and the automobile manufacturer should be uh, responsible for the criminal act. Um, that's the scenario that we're facing in the context of criminal uh, use of, of firearms. And, and it, it, it turns out to be, in fact, that uh, neither the uh, no manufacturer in that context is, is liable for the criminal misuse of uh, products that are both useful and dangerous. Uh, so useful and dangerous things include automobiles, uh, they include alcohol, they include a variety of things uh, where manufacturers are regulated, and if they behave negligently in the manufacture and in the distribution, meaning if they violate the law that governs the manufacture and distribution of uh, those products, uh, then they can be sued and properly so. Uh, it's an extension beyond that, and, and what this suit does, and what the earlier suits uh, before the current federal law was in place, uh, what those suits tried to do was to say that uh, that criminal use of a lawful product should also result in the manufacturer being liable. And what we're really talking about here is, is just the fundamental uh, disagreement in our society about how much risk and how much utility firearms present. And uh, I mean, that, and that is a fair disagreement. If I were in the position of, of, of Mr. Feynman, I, I probably would be making the arguments that he is making about risk and utility because the risk of firearms has, has fallen particularly heavy on him, has fallen particularly heavy on the survivors of the victims of uh, families of victims in, in, in Newtown. Uh, but, and, and there are, on, on the other side of the ledger, though, other people who have defended themselves with, with firearms, uh, who've got a, a long, longer history of a sort of distrust of, of local and state governments. And uh, it's, it's a complicated issue. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's sort of discouraging for me to hear folks angry at 
one another over over this issue. We, we've got fair disagreement on the risk and utility of firearms. Uh, what the Prevention of Lawful uh, Commerce and Firearms Act does, though, is to say that uh, manufacturers are not going to be responsible for criminal use of their firearms if they have followed the law in terms of manufacturing and distribution. Okay, we've, uh, we are pretty much near the end of our time. I do want to give each of you an opportunity to go around one more time and give me your uh, closing thoughts on this issue. Uh, and I also invite you uh, at that point to let our listeners know how they can find out more about the work that you're doing and follow up with you if they care to do that. So let me start, uh, Elliot Feynman, with you. Uh, your, uh, your final thoughts today. Well, uh, first of all, to reach us, uh, please just go to our website, www.gunvictimsaction.org, uh, and you can find out all of the things we're doing and even join in and participate in a number of things we're doing. The reality here, there are two realities here that, that really drive a lot of this uh, situation. One is the position of the uh, other side that any sane gun law is an attack on their freedoms and is going to lead to confiscation. And if you hold that position as they do, as I'm sure Mr. Heller does, uh, that means you can't have any gun laws because any gun law leads to confiscation, which of course, one of the things that's so striking is that the other side doesn't realize that uh, the government doesn't have to know who has a single gun. They're opposed to registration and licensing on the basis of, well, if the government knows who has a gun, they'll take them away. The government doesn't have to know who has a single gun to take them all away. But the government has never taken all the guns away. The only people who talks about taking guns away, of course, are the pro-gunners, the NRA gun lobby, etc. The other point here is guns do not offer self-protection. Carrying a gun does not offer you self-protection. The element of surprise always defeats the gun carrier. If guns offered protection, carrying them, um, no police officers would get killed. President Reagan wouldn't have gotten shot. The reality is that uh, it doesn't. And we're doing a study now that will be coming out in the spring that will definitively show that carrying a gun either concealed in public, either concealed or openly, provides no self-defense. So we're stuck with uh, fantasies, you know, of, uh, uh, it was just interesting, just two weeks ago, the there was a group in Texas, the, the Truth About Guns, that recreated the Charlie Hebdo uh, uh, attack. And they had uh, people, you know, armed with guns, you know, being the people in Charlie Hebdo that would be attacked. And then when they were attacked, not one single person survived, not one. The only one, actually, there was one woman who survived the attack in this simulation, and it was because she ran away. Everyone else who tried to defend themselves or tried to intervene were, were killed. <laughs> I mean, in, in the, you know, in this uh, uh, simulation. Uh, there have been other simulations to show, you know, the paucity of uh, uh, of this idea that guns provide self-defense. They're offensive weapons, and uh, they certainly can be used and should be used for people to hunt and for marksmanship and things like that. But we don't need people walking around carrying guns. Thanks a lot, uh, Elliot Feynman. Charles Heller, uh, executive, former executive director of Jews for the Preservation of Firearms Ownership. Let's hear your final thoughts. 
I'm certified by my state to teach people to carry guns because the state of Arizona knows the value of walking around with one. And all the other states currently have methods of uh, making sure that people have the proper training so that they can be safe and effective walking around with guns. And I don't carry one. I carry two. This is so much for his theory. I've had four DGU's defensive gun uses in my life. Thankfully, I've never ended up having to pull the trigger. As far as getting in touch with us, you can reach us through our website, JPFO, that's Jews for the Preservation of Firearms Ownership, dot org. If you want to reach me, Charles Heller, at JPFO, dot org. And in closing, I'd like to say you can never, ever achieve anything in society by punishing the innocent for the acts of the guilty. And as far as not wanting gun laws, of course there's moral gun laws. There's five of them, and nobody, and rarely can anyone ever name the five moral gun laws. One, you're responsible for every shot you fire. Two, if you're under 18, your uh, your rights come through your parents. Three, if you're if you criminally misuse a gun, the court can sever your rights. Four, if you are uh, declared a danger to yourself, a court can sever your rights. And five, anyone who for any reason attempts to take any gun from you under any but the first four circumstances should immediately be arrested, heavily fined, imprisoned, and banned from government service. Thanks a lot. And Nicholas Johnson, you you get the last word today. Okay. Well, I'll just uh, give a pitch to some of the work that I've done uh, in in the past. Uh, uh, The question about supply controls and incremental bans and the the sort of political debate between basically the left and the right on this issue, uh, I I wrote about several years ago in uh, an article in the Wake Forest Law Review called uh, uh, just testing the question of supply controls. And what I uh, showed there is that given the number of guns that we start with, the the issue of supply controls and the viability of supply controls is something that people, regardless of what they think about uh, the utility of firearms, should be quite skeptical about just in terms of, of its potential consequences. So uh, I'll pitch that, and, and people can uh, get a citation to it on my uh, website at the Fordham Law School webpage. Um, the, the other thing, again, that I'll emphasize is that there, there is a serious debate about the deterrent impact of, um, of armed citizens. Uh, there have been a variety of, of studies. Um, uh, Richard Wright did a couple of books uh, several years ago uh, dealing with this issue. Uh, I've got citations to that on, on my uh, on my webpage. Also, I, I would urge people to, to look just at, at sort of, uh, unfortunately here, the, the anecdotal evidence seems to be uh, more powerful than, than lots of the sort of careful empirical work. Go to Armed Self-Defense or the Armed Self-Defense channel on YouTube, and what you will see are a variety of public reports uh, that defy the common national reporting, suggesting that there are only costs associated with with fires. And, and of course, you know, people have to make up their own minds about the balance, but uh, we're not doing ourselves a favor by uh, suggesting that that firearms only present uh, uh, risks and only have costs. They also have benefits. People have to make up uh, their own minds about how how to balance that for uh, their own situations. Well, thanks to all of you for uh, sharing your thoughts and insights on this topic. I really appreciate it. Our guests today have been Elliot Feynman, President and CEO of the National Gun Victims Action Council, Charles Heller, a radio host and the former executive director, now communications director for Jews for the Preservation of Firearms Ownership, and Nicholas Johnson, professor of law at Fordham University School of Law uh, and author of the uh, textbook, Second Amendment Cases and Materials, published by Aspen Press in 2012.
That does it for today's episode. Hope you'll join us next time for uh, another episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. Remember, uh, when you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.